This is section 61 of Mark Twain, a biography. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain, a biography. Volume 1, Part 2, 1866 to 1875. Chapter 61 The Innocents Abroad. It was Dan, Jack, and the doctor who with Mark Twain wandered down through Italy and left moral footprints that remain to this day. The Italian guides are wary about showing pieces of the true cross, fragments of the crown of thorns, and the bones of saints since then. They show them, it is true, but with a smile. The name of Mark Twain is a touchstone to test their statements. Not a guide in Italy but has heard the tale of that iconoclastic crew, and of the book which turned their marvels into myths, their relics into bywords. It was Dr. Jackson, Colonel Denny, Dr. Birch, and Samuel Clemens who evaded the quarantine and made the perilous night trip to Athens and looked upon the Parthenon and the sleeping city by moonlight. It is all set down in the notes, and the account varies little from that given in the book. Only he does not tell us that Captain Duncan and the quartermaster, Pratt, connived at the escapade or how the latter watched the shore in anxious suspense until he heard the whistle which was their signal to be taken aboard. It would have meant six months' imprisonment if they had been captured, for there was no discretion in the Greek law. It was T. D. Crocker, A. N. Sanford, Colonel Peter Kinney, and William Gibson who were delegated to draft the address to the Emperor of Russia at Yalta, with Samuel L. Clemens as chairman of that committee. The chairman wrote the address, the opening sentence of which he grew so weary of hearing, We are a handful of private citizens of America, traveling simply for recreation, and unostentatiously as becomes our unofficial state. The address is all set down in the notes, and there also exists the first rough draft, with the emendations in his own hand. He deplores the time it required. That job is over. Writing addresses to emperors is not my strong suit. However, if it is not as good as it might be, it doesn't signify. The other committee men ought to have helped me write it. They had nothing to do, and I had my hands full. But for bothering with this, I would have caught up entirely with my New York Tribune correspondence, and nearly up with the San Francisco. They wanted him also to read the address to the Emperor, but he pointed out that the American consul was the proper person for that office. He tells how the address was presented. August 26th, the imperial carriages were in waiting at eleven, and at twelve we were at the palace. The consul for Edessa read the address, and the Tsar said frequently, Good, very good, indeed. And at the close, I am very, very grateful. It was not improper for him to set down all this, and much more, in his own notebook, not then for publication. 
it was in fact a very proper record for today. one incident of the imperial audience mark twain omitted from his book perhaps because the humor of it had not yet become sufficiently evident the humorous perception of a thing is a pretty slow growth sometimes he once remarked it was about seventeen years before he could laugh enjoyably at a slight mistake he made at the emperor's reception he set down a memorandum of it then for fear it might be lost there were a number of great dignitaries of the empire there and although as a general thing they were dressed in citizens clothing i observed that the most of them wore a very small piece of ribbon in the lapels of their coats that little touch of color struck my fancy and it seemed to me a good idea to add it to my own attractions not imagining that it had any special significance so i stepped aside hunted up a bit of red ribbon and ornamented my lapel with it presently count festetics the grand master of ceremonies and the only man there who was gorgeously arrayed in full official costume began to show me a great many attentions he was particularly polite and pleasant and anxious to be of service to me presently he asked me what order of nobility i belonged to i said i didn't belong to any then he asked me what order of knighthood i belonged to i said none then he asked me what the red ribbon in my buttonhole stood for i saw at once what an ass i had been making of myself and was accordingly confused and embarrassed i said the first thing that came into my mind and that was that the ribbon was merely the symbol of a club of journalists to which i belonged and i was not pursued with any more of count festetic's attentions later i got on very familiar terms with an old gentleman whom i took to be the head gardener and walked him all about the gardens slipping my arm into his without invitation yet without demur on his part and by and by was confused again when i found that he was not a gardener at all but the lord high admiral of russia i almost made up my mind that i would never call on an emperor again like all mediterranean excursionists 
those first pilgrims were insatiable collectors of curios costumes and all manner of outlandish things dan sloat had the stateroom hung and piled with such gleanings at constantinople his roommate writes i thought dan had got the stateroom pretty full of rubbish at last but a while ago his dragoman arrived with a brand-new ghastly tombstone of the oriental pattern with his name handsomely carved and gilted on it in turkish characters that fellow will buy a circassian slave next it was church denny jack davis dan moult and mark twain who made the long trip through syria from beirut to jerusalem with their elaborate camping outfit and decrepit nags jericho balbec and the rest it was better camping than that humboldt journey of six years before though the horses were not so dissimilar and altogether it was a hard nerve-racking experience climbing the arid hills of palestine in that torrid summer heat nobody makes that trip in summer-time now tourists hurry out of syria before the first of april and they do not go back before november one brief quotation from mark twain's book gives us an idea of what that early party of pilgrims had to undergo we left damascus at noon and rode across the plain a couple of hours and then the party stopped a while in the shade of some fig trees to give me a chance to rest it was the hottest day we had seen yet the sun flames shot down like the shafts of fire that stream out before a blow-pipe the rays seemed to fall in a deluge on the head and pass downward like rain from a roof i imagined i could distinguish between the floods of rays i thought i could tell when each flood struck my head when it reached my shoulders and when the next one came it was terrible he had been ill with cholera at damascus a light attack but any attack of that dread disease is serious enough he tells of this in the book but he does not mention either in the book or in his notes the attack which dan sloat had some days later it remained for william f church of the party to relate that incident for it was the kind of thing that mark twain was not likely to record or even to remember dr church was a deacon with orthodox views and did not approve of mark twain he thought him sinful irreverent profane he was the worst man i ever knew church said then he added and the best what happened was this at the end of a terrible day of heat when the party had camped on the edge of a squalid syrian village dan was taken suddenly ill it was cholera beyond doubt dan could not go on he might never go on the chances were that way it was a serious matter all around to wait with dan meant to upset their travel schedule it might mean to miss the ship consultation was held and a resolution passed 
the pilgrims were always passing resolutions to provide for dan as well as possible and leave him behind clemens who had remained with dan suddenly appeared and said gentlemen i understand that you are going to leave dan sloat here alone i'll be damned if i do and he didn't he stayed there and brought dan into jerusalem a few days late but convalescent perhaps most of them were not always reverent during that holy land trip it was a trying journey and after fierce days of desert hills the reaction might not always spare even the holiest memories jack was particularly sinful when they learned the price for a boat on galilee and the deacons who had traveled nearly half round the world to sail on that sacred water were confounded by the charge jack said well denny do you wonder now that christ walked it was the irreverent jack who one morning they had camped the night before by the ruins of jericho refused to get up to see the sunrise across the jordan deacon church went to his tent jack my boy get up here is the place where the israelites crossed over into the promised land and beyond are the mountains of moab where moses lies buried moses who said jack oh jack my boy moses the great lawgiver who led the israelites out of egypt forty years through the wilderness to the promised land forty years said jack how far was it but it was three hundred miles jack a great wilderness and he brought them through in safety jack regarded him with scorn ha huh. moses three hundred miles forty years why ben holliday would have brought them through in thirty-six hours ben holliday owner of the overland stages and a man of great executive ability this incident a true one is more elaborately told in roughing it but it seems pertinent here jack probably learned more about the bible during that trip its history and its heroes than during all his former years nor was jack the only one of that group thus benefited the sacred landmarks of palestine inspire a burning interest in the scriptures and mark twain probably did not now regret those early sunday school lessons certainly he did not fail to review them exhaustively on that journey his notebooks fairly overflow with bible references the syrian chapters in the innocents abroad are permeated with the poetry and legendary beauty of the bible story the little bible he carried on that trip bought in constantinople was well worn by the time they reached the ship again at jaffa he must have read it with a large and persistent interest also with a double benefit for besides the knowledge acquired he was harvesting a profit probably unsuspected at the time viz the influence of the most direct and beautiful english the english of the king james version which could not fail to affect his own literary method at that impressionable age we have already noted his earlier admiration for that noble and simple poem the burial of moses which in the palestine notebook is copied in full all the tendency of his expression lay that way and the intense consideration of stately bible phrase and imagery could hardly fail to influence his mental processes 
the very distinct difference of style as shown in the innocents abroad and in his earlier writings we may believe was in no small measure due to his study of the king james version during those weeks in palestine he bought another bible at jerusalem but it was not for himself it was a little souvenir volume bound in olive and balsam wood and on the fly-leaf is inscribed mrs jane clemens from her son jerusalem september twenty fourth eighteen sixty seven there is one more circumstance of that long cruise recorded neither in the book nor the notes an incident brief but of more importance in the life of samuel clemens than any heretofore set down it occurred in the beautiful bay of smyrna on the fifth or sixth of september while the vessel lay there for the ephesus trip reference has been made to young charles langdon of elmira the charlie once mentioned in the innocents as an admirer of mark twain there was a good deal of difference in their ages and they were seldom of the same party but sometimes the boy invited the journalist to his cabin and boy-like exhibited his treasures he had two sisters at home and of olivia the youngest he had brought a dainty miniature done on ivory in delicate tints a sweet pictured countenance fine and spiritual on that fateful day in the day of smyrna samuel clemens visiting in young langdon's cabin was shown this portrait he looked at it with long admiration and spoke of it reverently for the delicate face seemed to him to be something more than a mere human likeness each time he came after that he asked to see the picture and once even begged to be allowed to take it away with him the boy would not agree to this and the elder man looked long and steadily at the miniature resolving in his mind that some day he would meet the owner of that lovely face a purpose for once in accord with that which the fates had arranged for him in the day when all things were arranged the day of the first beginning end of chapter sixty one the innocents abroad read by john greenman